0: If ever there was a town you could say had an identity crisis, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more likely candidate than Texarkana. Straddling the border between Texas and Arkansas, Texarkana functions like two towns butting up against one another by circumstance. Although officially it's considered one town, it actually functions with two separate mayors, two separate police and fire departments, and two separate municipal governments. The United States government and the Republic of Texas drew the boundary lines back in 1841, splitting it in half with everything labeled East being Arkansas and everything labeled West belonging to Texas. They used to have two separate post offices for each state, until they finally decided to split the difference and build a joint facility right on the state line in 1892. That post office was demolished in 1930 to make room for the new facility which is still there today. Naturally, over the years, there were a few rivalries that sprung up between the two halves. This being Texas, the home of Friday Night Lights, high school football is king. And the annual football game between the Texas High Tigers and the Arkansas High Razorbacks would sometimes break out in fistfights in the stands. Until the events of 1946, the worst tragedy the town ever encountered occurred during a violent storm that struck in 1882. The lightning and fierce winds drove people indoors. Unfortunately, many of them decided to take shelter inside the Paragon Saloon and Gambling House. A bolt of lightning struck the building next door, which was still under construction. Strong winds blew a section of the building's wall onto the saloon, which shattered part of the building and knocked over several kerosene lamps. A fire broke out in the building and at least 40 men perished in the resulting destruction. One of them, who was hopelessly pinned beneath the rubble, chose to take his own life with a gunshot to the head rather than burn to death. By the 1940s, Texarkana had gained something of a reputation as a crossroads and was sometimes referred to as the gateway to the Southwest. With four major highways intersecting, four rail lines, and even a small airport, the town became a place that you crossed through on the way to other places throughout the country. Some people took to calling the town Little Chicago, since its location attracted many famous politicians and performers for a quick stopover. One other result of the town's geography was that it also became a natural haven for criminals. Although the saloons and gambling dens vanished with the fading of the Old West, brothels continued to flourish in the region well after World War II. And organized crime gained a minor foothold in the area. Because of its unique location, Criminals would often try to avoid prosecution just by crossing the street into the neighboring state. And of course, with the growth in the criminal element, that brought with it the occasional murder. On July 24, 1940, Gertrude Hutchinson was found dead on the Arkansas side of town. Her head had been smashed with a car axle, and her throat slit ear to ear. Her killer was never found. The following year, a 16-year-old boy who was on parole for a shotgun killing in Alabama four years earlier fatally bludgeoned to death a younger boy with a pop bottle. In 1942, a group of white men dragged a 31-year-old African-American man named Willie Vinson they suspected of attacking a white woman out of a cafe. Then they shot him in the abdomen and hung his body from a cotton compress a mile away. The woman never positively identified Vinson or any other man as her attacker. But although the case drew national attention, including an investigation by the FBI, no arrests were ever made in the man's murder. But it wasn't all bad in Texarkana. Sure, there was crime, but nothing out of the ordinary for a town that size. There were plenty of old-timers who fondly remembered the days when the town was idyllic, like something straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. The kind of place where everyone knew everyone, and no one locked their doors at night. A good place where you could settle down, get married, and raise some kids. But there came a time when that all changed. A time when mistrust and fear settled over the quiet community like a shroud. When practically overnight people began locking their doors. When they nailed their windows shut and bought guard dogs. When the local gun shops had a run on firearm sales. And parents hugged their children just a little bit tighter when they put them to bed at night. The year was 1946. Young men were just back from the war, and at least for a little while it probably felt like the world had regained a bit of sanity. That is, until a masked killer who came to be known as the Phantom began stalking young lovers around town in the dead of night. A serial killer who has gone on to inspire countless movies, books, and urban legends. A killer who has never been caught. I'm Nate Hale, bringing to you the story of the other worst phantom menace in history. And this is The Conspirators. They were both married when they met, but not to each other. Jimmy Hollis was 25 years old in February 1946, and Mary Jean Larray was 19. They were each in the process of divorcing their respective spouses, and they didn't see anything wrong with getting back into the dating scene. Mary Jean was a looker, and Jimmy had a gift for gab. He was funny. He could always make the ladies laugh, which helped him when he finally worked up the courage to ask Mary Jean out on a double date with his younger brother Bob and his girl Virginia Fairchild. Jimmy wanted to impress Mary Jean So they went to the movies at the Paramount Theater The Paramount was a classy place Where men often wore coats and ties And the women dressed to the nines in high heels and their best dresses About a quarter after ten they left the picture show Jimmy driving his gray Chevrolet He took them to a driving cafe where they sipped sodas and chatted Then he drove Bob and his date home After that It was going to be a long drive back to the town of Hooks where Mary Jean lived. But before he took her home, Jimmy took them on a detour to Richmond Road north of town. Richmond Road was a dirt lane back in those days, and more important, it was isolated. The kind of place where two young lovers could sit and do whatever it is that young lovers do at night. It was just after 11 p.m. Earlier that evening, there had been some light rain and fog, and now the air was pleasantly cool. A fingernail of moon hung in the sky. Jimmy and Mary Jean chatted for a few minutes. Jimmy fancied himself a crooner, and he sang a romantic song to her. Although he never explained exactly what happened to make him do so, after a few minutes he got out of the car and took a moment to look up at the night sky. As he stood there in the cool, quiet dark, a powerful flashlight beam switched on about 20 feet away, blinding him. Jimmy put up his hand and squinted through the ring of light. He thought he could see what looked like a pistol barrel aimed his way. A gruff voice broke the still night air and began barking orders at him. What was the guy saying? Did he really just tell him to take off his pants? Jimmy thought this had to be some sort of practical joke. Fella, you've got me mixed up with someone else, he said. I don't want to kill you, the man said, coming closer now. Mary Jean could see him clearly through the windshield and what she saw made her gasp the man was holding a pistol and a flashlight and he wore a white hood over his face with two holes cut out for the eyes and another for the mouth you better do what I tell you he told Jimmy take off your goddamn pants now by now Jimmy realized the man was serious from behind him he could hear Mary Jean pleading with him to just do what the man said Jimmy had no choice He undid his belt and lowered his trousers, and as he stepped out of one of his pant legs, the stranger moved forward and struck Jimmy twice in the skull with a heavy blunt object. The sound was loud enough that Mary Jean thought that Jimmy had been shot. It wasn't gunfire, though. The sound she'd heard was Jimmy's skull cracking. With Jimmy crumpled on the ground and not moving, the stranger turned his attention to Mary Jean. She got out of the car and she bent to get Jimmy's wallet out of his trousers. She tried to show the stranger he didn't have any money. The stranger shouted back at her that she was lying. Then he asked her for her purse. She tried to tell him she didn't have one, but this only seemed to enrage him more. He swung and struck her in the head with something. She didn't know what. She fell to the ground, but then managed to get back to her feet. Take off, the man screamed at her. Run. And run she did. She headed in the direction of a nearby ditch, But then the man told her not that way, head for the road Mary Jean complied as best she could She was wearing high-heeled shoes which made running difficult She could hear Jimmy groaning behind her Which gave her some hope that he wasn't dead But then she heard the sound of more blows being struck A sound that filled her veins with ice water She stumbled blindly down the road It was so dark here and she was terrified Her heart galloped in her chest Then she heard the thud of footsteps coming up behind her and suddenly the man had his hands upon her. What are you running for? he asked. Mary Jean told him the obvious answer. You told me to run. He said she was a goddamn liar and then he struck her across the skull hard enough to open a wound in her scalp. The man forced her to the ground and then he sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. Mary Jean screamed, begging the man to just go ahead and kill her. But for some reason, after what felt like an eternity, but was probably only a few minutes, he got up and left her. Days later, she considered that he might have gotten scared off by some approaching headlights. After the man was gone, Mary Jean's only thought was that she needed to get help for Jimmy. She struggled to her feet and hobbled down the road as best she could. She ran up on the first porch she came to, pounded on the door, and begged the owner to call the police. Both Mary Jean LeRae and Jimmy Hollis would eventually recover from their injuries. Jimmy's recovery took longer because the gunman had fractured his skull in three places. The police didn't go easy on Mary Jean. They felt her story didn't add up, and they seemed convinced that she must have known her assailant. It didn't help that neither one of them could give a good description of the man since neither one of them had gotten a clear look at his face. Jimmy said he didn't even remember seeing the hood but Mary Jean insisted that he had worn one. Jimmy thought the man was a dark-tanned white male, while Mary Jean thought he was a light-skinned black man. They both agreed he was around six feet tall. Eventually, with no leads and no suspects, the police decided it was just an isolated incident and moved on from the investigation. Only it wasn't. A few weeks later on Sunday, March 24th, a passing motorist saw a car parked on another lover's lane called Rich Road near a railroad spur about 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67 West. At first, the motorist thought the occupants of the car were sleeping. But when he pulled over to get a better look, he found the dead bodies of 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin and his 17-year-old girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore. Griffin's body was between the front seats on his knees, with his hands resting on his crossed legs. His pockets were turned inside out. Pollyanne Moore was sprawled face down on the back seat. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car, and both of them had been shot once in the back of the head. Later there would be a bit of a mix-up, and Moore's body would be taken to the Texarkana funeral home and prepared for burial before she could be properly examined to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted. After these killings, police launched a major investigation that involved sheriff's investigators, local police, the FBI, and even the Texas Rangers. They found a section of ground about 20 feet away from the car that was saturated with blood. Blood was spattered throughout the vehicle. They also found a blanket with a 32 caliber cartridge inside. Police speculated that the killer might have wrapped the blanket around the gun to muffle the noise. Unfortunately, since it had rained the night before, No footprints were found anywhere nearby. Eventually, Police Chief Jack Runnels would put up a $500 reward for information leading to an arrest, but there were no takers. And although several suspects were brought in for questioning, no arrests were made. On Saturday night, April 13th, 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker was playing her saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band at the local VFW club. They didn't finish up until 1.30 a.m., At which time, Betty Jo's lifelong friend, 16-year-old Paul Martin, arrived to pick her up and escort her home. At around 6.30 a.m. Sunday morning, Martin's body was found on the northern side of North Park Road by a family driving by. Martin had been shot four times, once through the nose, once through the left fourth rib from behind, once through his right hand, and finally, one in the back of his neck. They didn't find Betty Jo Booker's body until around 11.30 a.m. She was found almost two miles away. She was lying on her back, fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. She had been shot twice, once in her left abdomen and once through her left cheek by her nose. Ballistics would show that the weapon was the same thirty-two caliber automatic that had been used in the earlier killings. Although such things were not widely reported in the papers back in that day, Some reports would indicate that Betty Jo Booker had been raped. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Martin's 1946 Ford Coupe was found about three miles away from the scene with the keys still in it. It's unclear which one of the teenagers was killed first. At the time, Betty Joe's saxophone was not found on the scene, although a great deal of police resources were dedicated to finding the instrument. They would find it dumped nearby in some bushes about six months later. By now, panic was beginning to spread through town. A voluntary midnight curfew was instituted. Local gun shops began selling out. Citizens began booby-trapping their homes, nailing windows shut, and emptying the local pound out of potential guard dogs. By April 25th, many donations had come in, bringing the reward fund up to $6,425. But no one came forward with any information worthy of claiming the money. Many people reported individuals they deemed suspicious, but none proved to be the phantom slayer, as he was now being referred to in the newspapers. On the night of Friday, May 3rd, after a hard day's work, 37-year-old Virgil Starks returned to his ranch-style home about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He had regular back problems, and his wife Katie gave him a heating pad and told him to sit in his favorite chair with it. He turned on the radio and Katie went into the back bedroom to lie down. While she was lying there in her nightgown, Katie thought she heard a noise from outside. She called out to Virgil to turn the radio down. Seconds later, she heard the sound of breaking glass. She got up to see what had happened. She didn't know at the time that someone had come up to the window next to where Virgil was sitting and shot him twice through it. When she came into the sitting room, Virgil was standing up, looking perplexed. Then he slumped back into his chair. Only then did she notice all the blood. She ran over toward her husband and lifted his chin. She could tell immediately he was dead. She ran to the phone to call the police. It was an old fashioned crank phone, and she managed to work the handle twice before the gunman shot her twice through the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited below her ear. The other went through her lower jaw, splintering several teeth before lodging under her tongue. But Katie Starks was a tough lady and when she heard someone trying to tear open the rusted screen on the back porch, despite being severely wounded, she ran for the bedroom with plans to leave a note. The killer ran alongside the back of the house and made his way up the steps to the side-screened porch. Katie could hear him coming through the kitchen window, so she changed directions and bolted through the dining room, then through the bedroom, down a hallway, and out the front door. She left behind her a trail of blood and broken teeth. Katie ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. She pounded on the door, but no one was home. Then she ran next door to find help. The neighbor got her in his car, and amazingly, although she'd lost a huge amount of blood, she managed to remain semi-conscious enough to pluck one of her gold fillings out of her shattered mouth and hand it to the man as payment for driving her to the hospital. Police swarmed the scene. There was some debate whether or not this was the phantom killer, both because of the change in M.O., as well as the fact that they later determined that the killer had used a different caliber gun. The bullets they retrieved from the scene were 22s, whereas the killer had used a 32 caliber in the earlier attacks. Throughout the house they found several bloody shoe prints on the kitchen floor and some smudged fingerprints elsewhere throughout the house. Police also found a large flashlight they believed the killer had left behind at the scene. No fingerprints were found on the flashlight, and although full-color photos of it were circulated in area newspapers, no one ever identified it either. Katie Stark survived the attack, and a few years later she actually remarried and lived a long and tragedy-free life. By the time news spread about the latest murder, the town was in a full-blown panic. Each night the streets turned into a virtual ghost town, with all the town's bars, movie theaters, and other gathering spots seeing a huge drop in business. Most liquor stores began closing at 9.30 each night. With no official news forthcoming from the police, plenty of rumors began to spread. Stories began to circulate that the police, or perhaps some local vigilante group, had actually caught and killed the madman in secret. Police issued statements asking for calm among the Texarkana citizens, but it didn't seem to help. Captain Manuel Team Gonzalez from the Texas Rangers only managed to make people even more jittery, when he did a radio interview and advised citizens to oil up their guns and keep them ready. This led to more than a few incidents of people shooting at shadows or some other disturbance they mistook for a burglar. In one instance, a local bar owner shot one of his own customers by mistake. Despite the town's hysteria, teenagers kept parking on lovers' lanes around town. One night, a patrol officer came across a car parked on a lonely road. When he approached the teenagers inside the vehicle to see what they were doing He was surprised to discover they were lying in wait for the killer with a loaded handgun A few days later, police arrested a teenage high school athlete Who had chased on a public bus because he was suspicious of one of the vehicle's occupants On May 12th, Captain Gonzalez issued another statement Urging all these teenage sleuths to leave the police work to the professionals although he would later use some local teenagers in sting operations trying to bait the Phantom by setting them up as decoys in parked cars. Despite his efforts, the Phantom never took the bait. The police had no shortage of suspects. Hundreds of people were interviewed, some more promising than others. On Saturday, April 27th, a man was arrested in Corpus Christi, Texas while trying to sell a saxophone to a music store. This seemed like a promising lead because, as you may recall... For several months, police were unable to locate Betty Jo Booker's saxophone. Although when police finally picked the man up, he didn't actually have a saxophone in his possession. But they did find a bag full of bloody clothing in his hotel room. The man claimed it was blood from a bar fight, and eventually, the police let him go without charges. Another promising suspect was 18-year-old University of Arkansas freshman Henry Booker Tennyson. On November 5, 1948, Tennyson was found dead in his bed at home in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He had taken his own life by consuming cyanide of mercury. Tennyson left behind a cryptic suicide note that read The opening to my box will be found in the following lines. In a tube of paper is found, rolls on color, and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and inside is the sheet you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. Police found another note inside the cap to a fountain pen. The cap was also lined with poison. That note was supposed to lead to the combination of a lockbox, but the police didn't feel like playing games and broke it open instead. Inside was a viewmaster, several rolls of film of Mexico, and a stack of papers that included a lengthy confession to the Texarkana murders. But despite the confession, police eventually decided that Tennyson was delusional and ruled him out as a suspect. A close friend provided an alibi for his whereabouts in the night Mr. and Mrs. Stark were shot. Ballistics tests of various firearms Tennyson would have had access to weren't a match to any of the cartridges retrieved from any of the murder scenes either. But of all the many suspects police looked at, there was one in particular who stood out. Max Tackett, a 33-year-old Arkansas state police officer, realized that on each night of the murders, a car was reported stolen. This led him to theorize that perhaps the Phantom was using stolen vehicles as his mode of transportation. On Friday, June 28, 1946, Tackett located a car that had been reported stolen in a parking lot and staked it out. He didn't have to wait long before a 21-year-old woman returned and got into it. Tackett arrested the woman and she told him she had just married her husband in Shreveport, but he was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Taggett managed to track the woman's husband to the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front Street near Union Station. There he chased the suspect down and arrested him. The 29-year-old man was named Yule Swinney, and when Officer Taggett caught up to him, the man put up his hands and begged him not to shoot. Tackett told Swinney that he wasn't going to shoot the man for being a car thief. To which Swinney replied, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. This wasn't the only suspicious statement Swinney made either. When police first got Swinney into the back of a police car, he asked the officer if he thought they'd give him the electric chair. The officer told Swinney they don't give the electric chair to car thieves. To which Swinney replied that he knew they had him for more than just stealing cars. There was plenty of circumstantial evidence connecting Swinney to the crimes. The car Peggy Swinney was arrested getting into had been reported stolen the night of the Griffin and Moore murders. Later on, when a lawyer told Peggy Swinney that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, How did they find out? Several members of Peggy's family and Yule's brother-in-law all believe Yule was the Phantom. Police found a khaki work shirt in the suspect's room with a laundry mark that read Stark under a blacklight. Police were also able to match slag found in the front pocket of the work shirt to samples found in Virgil Stark's welding shop. It's known that Yule Swinney once owned a 32 caliber Colt automatic, the same make and model gun police suspected was used in most of the crimes. Although he claimed to have sold the gun in a crap game. But despite all the circumstantial evidence, Swinney never confessed to the crime. Investigators were also unable to match Yule's fingerprints to any of the prints discovered at the various crime scenes. Although early on, Peggy Swinney broke down and confessed that she knew her husband was the Phantom Killer. She later retracted her confession, and by law couldn't be forced to testify against her husband. Despite the fact that the killer was never caught, and the victims are long dead, Texarkana just doesn't seem like it can let its dark past go. Each year, the Northridge Country Club holds an annual Phantom Charity Ball. In 1976, Texarkana native Charles B. Pierce made the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is a largely fictional recreation of the murders. Every October, near Halloween, the town shows the movie in a free outdoor event at Spring Lake Park. In 2014, a meta-sequel to the film was released. The Texarkana murders are also often cited as the inspiration for the famous urban legend about the escaped lunatic with a hook for a hand that stalks lovers' lanes. Although authorities were unable to arrest Yule Swinney for murder, he still received a life sentence in prison after being convicted for a third time for auto theft. That conviction was later overturned by the courts in 1973, and he walked free. Swinney died in 1994. Despite the large amount of circumstantial evidence that points to Swinney, some investigators remain unconvinced. People who claim Swinney's innocence often point to a similar killing that occurred in October 1946 while Swinney was in police custody that occurred in a lover's lane near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Just as in the Texarkana shootings, a young couple was killed by an unknown assailant with a 32 pistol. No one was ever arrested for the crime. Some people have speculated over the years that the reason the killings stopped was because the murderer left town for new hunting grounds. Some people have made even wilder speculation by trying to tie the Phantom Killer to the Zodiac Killer in Southern California two decades later. Whatever reason the killings may have stopped, this speculation has only made it easier for the legend of the Phantom Killer to live on in history. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to give a special thank you to Rose for clicking the donate button on our website and helping support the show. We're now part of the Dark Myths Collective, and I wanted to take a moment to recommend another show. In Our Fake History, your host Sebastian Major helps shed light on the myths that help get intertwined with history. It's a fun way to learn about the real story behind the alleged real story. As for my own show, as always, I invite you to spread the word and subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.